How would you like to test your blood ketones for just $1 per strip? Join the Keto Clarity Club at bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. And join the club to get $1 strips when purchased in vials of 50. You get to choose how often that they will ship to you and you'll still get that $1 price per strip. And while you're at bestketonetest.com, make sure you get the meter. And we also have glucose strips sold in vials of 50 and you'll get $5 off with the coupon code Jimmy. There's also the Ketonian Special Kit, which allows you to get the meter, lancet, as well as a starter pack of blood ketone test strips. Again, it's bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. Bestketonetest.com. Today's featured audio is from the 2017 Low Carb USA San Diego event. Visit lowcarbusa.org for more information about the July 26th through the 29th, 2018 Low Carb USA event in San Diego, California. Ah, uh, living la vida low carb. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast hosted by Jim. Give me more. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. I have a company called Low Carb Dietitian, and my website is lowcarbdietitian.com. So I get a lot of people contacting me, asking me, how do I become a low-carb dietitian? What schooling do you go to? What kind of training do you get? And as Doug said, there are some other uh, nutritionist uh, certifications that take low-carb into account. But registered dietitians cannot practice low-carb. So I received very standard, conventional training. Uh, it was based on the uh, healthy plate, which was back then the food guide pyramid. I don't know if you remember that. That was for, uh, around for a long time. And the healthy guidelines. Um, and I thought that this was the best way to eat. It, it seemed right. It's what all of my professors were teaching me. I never heard anything about the Atkins diet, except when we were talking about fad diets. I didn't learn anything about ketogenic diets, except when we briefly dis discussed them as an alternative treatment for epilepsy in children. Um, after you finish your four-year degree and get your bachelor's degree, you do a one-year internship. And during that time, you're working in the hospital, you're working with, um, in the community and at school food service. And in all of those settings, you're doing you know, the standard healthy plate uh, recommendations. You are not allowed to teach low-carb. At the time, it wasn't that hard for me. It would be now, going to school and learning this, knowing what I know. But at the time, I, um, I ate that way myself. I didn't eat egg yolks more than four times a week. I used margarine instead of butter. I did all the things you were supposed to do, and this is what I taught everyone I worked with. And I did that for several years, until about 2011, when I found out that my blood sugar was rising to dramatically high levels after eating. Uh, my fasting blood sugar was always in the 80s, so no one ever tested me for diabetes or anything like that. But uh, yeah, if I, if I checked my blood sugar and an hour after eating, it was frequently 160 to 180. And I wasn't eating a lot of carbs, maybe 50 grams in a mixed meal. So you know, not nearly as high as what you hear the average American eats 300, 300 plus. Um, so I started doing a lot of research on my own. I went online and looked at what people with diabetes were doing to control their blood sugar. I read a lot of uh, research on carb restriction for diabetes, which had never been mentioned in school. And uh, I started cutting back on carbs and noticed a huge difference in my blood sugar. And I realized I could control my blood sugar just fine as long as I kept my carb intake you know, pretty low. At the time, maybe 15, 20 grams per meal. So I knew I couldn't teach this at the hospital I worked at, so I left and went on my own at the end of 2013. And I've been in private practice, practicing exclusively low-carb uh, with people, mainly diabetes and weight management. And uh, I also do some ketogenic work as well. 
And, uh, but that's, that's the thing. You cannot become a low-carb dietitian through school. You can be a dietitian and then learn about low-carb, or you can do the reverse. But at this time, you cannot go to school to become a low-carb dietitian. Okay, so uh, as I said, I have a private practice, but I also do quite a bit of writing. Um, does anyone know the Authority Nutrition website? I, I write for them, um, primarily low-carb articles, but also um, you know, some, some non-low-carb ones, magnesium and vitamin D and things like that, but no, nothing recommending high carbs. And then I also recently published a low-carb for diabetes ebook. So I was paid for those, and I just want to make that clear. Okay, so ketogenic diets are huge. I know all the speakers this morning were talking about them, and you know, for good reason, there are a lot of benefits to ketogenic diets and very, very low-carb diets. But um, my whole point today is going to be that we need to you know, be really individualized in making recommendations, and I'm not gonna do a lot of science talk. I'm gonna go over a few studies now because I think it's important to do so, um, just to show the evidence base as a dietitian that I take into account. But uh, you heard a lot of the mechanism and how um, low-carb diets have been studied earlier today. So this is what I'm going to be talking about, is how to put it into practice after I briefly go through a few different amounts of carb intake that have been shown to be effective. So uh, first of all, less than 20 grams per day. Um, so this is like a ketogenic diet. It's uh, the first study I'm talking about was very small, only 10 people and only for two weeks. But in that period of time, even though they were on a completely um, uncalorie restricted diet, as long as they, let their, uh, they didn't let their carbs go over 20 grams per day, they could eat as much protein and fat as they wanted. So basically very similar to Atkins induction. And they lost weight, um, but I think more importantly, these were all people with type 2 diabetes. They had a 0.5% decrease in their A1C in just uh, two weeks, which is pretty dramatic. It usually takes a while to see a change in A1C. Um, they also automatically reduced their calorie intake. Even though they were allowed to eat as much as they wanted, they ate 1,000 calories less per day on average, which is really big. And that helps lead to the improvement in insulin sensitivity, 75% improvement in insulin sensitivity in just two weeks. So this is really dramatic. Very short study, but I think if they'd continued on, you would have seen even more improvements. Okay, so next is 20 to 50 grams of carb per day. And most studies, low-carb studies, have been done at about this amount. They don't always specify whether that is net or total carbohydrates. So net carbohydrate would be uh, total carbohydrates minus all fiber. But in this particular study I'm going to talk about, they actually were counting less than 50 grams, about 20 to 50 grams of digestible carb. They did subtract the fiber. So these were the impact carbs or net carbs. And uh, in this study, it was a little bit bigger, 25 people, and um, it was longer, eight months. And they compared, uh, it was also in people with type 2 diabetes this time, it was calorie restricted for both groups. They compared a uh, very low carb diet to a standard MyPlate diet. So you know what the MyPlate looks like. I don't think we've talked about it at this conference, but you know, it's a quarter of your plate is whole grains, a quarter of your plate is protein, a quarter is vegetables, a quarter is fruit, and then you have some dairy off to the side. So altogether, it's a pretty high-carb plate. And they, they compared these two, and over an eight-month period of time, there was twice the reduction in A1C um, by the low-carb group. They also... Uh, 11 out of 12 people, um, sorry, 10 out of 11 people, lost more than 5% of their body weight versus only two out of eight in the other group. The other group also had a much higher dropout rate. Almost half the people dropped out of the healthy plate method and only one person dropped out of the uh, low-carb, high-fat diet. And that just kind of speaks to the, um, the ability of low-carb to reduce your appetite and make you feel as though you're not on a diet. They stuck to it for eight months, which is really long for a weight loss study. There's notoriously high uh, dropouts in, in diet studies. Um, and then finally, 50 to 100 grams a day. So now we're getting more into kind of moderate low carb. Really, none of these people would be in ketosis. And what I forgot to mention is um, that the study before, they actually did check urinary ketones. But as long as they were mildly there, that was considered being compliant with the diet. In the next study, they didn't test ketones or anything because most people wouldn't be producing them at 50 to 100 grams per day. But this was by far the largest study, over 300 obese people. 
and uh, it went the longest, nine months. And uh, it was also calorie-restricted, where they compared um, a low-carb, high-protein diet to a, uh, a standard weight loss diet. And they had uh, greater weight loss. The, the low-carb diet had greater weight loss. They also had twice the reduction in insulin levels and twice the improvement in insulin sensitivity. So this shows here that there is a large, large range of carb intake that can be um, successful for uh, weight loss and diabetes management. Now, I'm just going to go on record in saying that I don't think low-carb is the only way to lose weight. I've seen people lose weight and even maintain weight um, weight loss by uh, other methods. I think low-carb gives you the best shot. I think it's the easiest and has the best uh, track record long-term for weight loss. Um, on the other hand, I feel that certain conditions that are uh, marked by insulin resistance, like PCOS, uh, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver disease, um, and also type 1 and type 2 diabetes, absolutely benefit from low-carb. I think they should be on some form of carbohydrate restriction for their health, not just for weight loss. So speaking of diabetes, um, there's two perspectives here. Uh, the first one is the best plan for people with diabetes is the same healthy eating plan that everyone should be following. 45 to 65% of calories from carbohydrate in the form of whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and non-fat dairy products. And I'm, I'm not going to name any names here, but um, this woman is a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator, as I am. But unlike me, she is also a spokeswoman for the American Diabetes Association and the American Association of Diabetes Educators. And I think sometimes the ADA gets a bad rap because there are people within that organization that are trying to move forward. Um, they actually had me write a research article a few years ago on our re review article on low-carb diets for diabetes and how they can be used in people with diabetes and prediabetes. So there are some good minds in the ADA. I've seen what they serve at their breakfast and everything. I don't agree with that, the high-carb trays of donuts and things. But... Um, but as far as some people in the organization, change is slow and some people are moving forward. So I thought perhaps that was the case with this woman. Because back in 2014, I, I thought she might have changed her tune, because back in 2014, um, the ADA actually came out with a position paper on nutrition saying that really carb intake should be individualized. There's no optimal carb intake, and low-carb diets can be one of several eating patterns that can be used to manage diabetes. So, I, yeah, it's pretty big news. And it seems like a lot of people didn't hear about it because not too many dietitians and certified diabetes educators are practicing that way, but I thought perhaps this woman now was. So uh, she had made this statement that I have here a long time ago. So I went online just a week ago to see what she'd done recently because I didn't want to get up here and you know, say something that was no longer true. But she did publish a blog post just at the end of July um, saying that, yes, Carb intake should be, in, I think the title of it was low-carb diets, um, what is it good? And, and then she said, you know, low-carb diets have been studied for a long time, um, but everything should be individualized, but really in order to meet your needs, you need, uh, you know, your nutrient needs, your fiber needs, your vitamins and minerals, you need to have somewhere between 45 and 65% of your calories coming from these whole food carbs. And I thought, okay, she hasn't changed, but there's, you know, there's always a chance that she will. But let's, <laughs> maybe, let's contrast that with this perspective. People with diabetes are entitled to the same normal blood sugar values as people who don't have diabetes. In order to avoid high blood sugar, you must avoid foods that raise diabetes, um, foods that raise blood sugar. And that statement was made by Dr. Richard K. Bernstein. Um, is anyone familiar with him? Awesome. That's great. I love to hear that. Uh, so he has type 1 diabetes and has had it since he was 12. He's now 83 years old. And yeah, he's amazing. He's an amazing health, but that wasn't always the case. For the uh, years, the first few years after he was diagnosed, um, he had horrible, horrible blood sugar swinging from high to low. Um, having such high blood sugar um, stunted his growth. He had kidney disease. This is all, he was a fairly young man, and he felt so tired. But when he learned that 
cutting back on carbs to very low amounts and using small amounts of insulin to cover it led to predictable blood sugar values. It gave him a new lease on life. He actually had energy. He could actually be productive. He was an engineer by trade, even with all of these things going on. He's a very dedicated and disciplined person. But he went back to school to become a medical doctor because he wanted to help other people learn to manage their blood sugar. And he has. He's helped thousands of people all over the world. He's amazing. And when you look at these two perspectives, I mean, it's very clear which one I believe in and all of you do. But um, unfortunately, I think you know, we're only starting to make headway in people coming around to that opinion. But um, he's just an remar a remarkable trailblazer. Okay, so as I mentioned, ketogenic diets are huge, and I firmly believe that they can be very beneficial for weight loss, for all kinds of health conditions, but so can low carb. I think sometimes we forget about low carb. I think some of it may have to do with how do you define a ketogenic diet. There's different definitions. From the people that I've talked to, um, let's say most people would maybe 20 grams or less per day is a ketogenic diet. I don't know, some people would say it depends on the individual, and that's kind of how I feel, because people uh, will produce ketones at different um, carb levels depending on lots of things, insulin sensitivity and how active they are. But let's say 20 grams or less per day, and over that would be like a, a very low-carb to low-carb diet. So I think they can both be beneficial, um, and you need to find what works best for you. Um, you know, when we do diet studies comparing low-carb or ketogenic diets, it's always compared to a high carb diet, whatever it is, to the Mediterranean diet or to the DASH diet or to um, a low-fat diet. It's never comparing less than 20 grams per day to 50 grams per day. I, that, I don't know if that study's ever going to get done. I think we'd all be interested in it. <laughs> but I think also, I would suspect that if you did like a crossover study where you had people follow each diet for a month with, with the washout period in between, you would find that some people did better in terms of blood sugar, weight, just how they overall, how they felt overall, um, with the very, very low carb ketogenic diet, and others would do better with a little more moderate intake of carbs, and then some would have really no difference. And I just think this is important to keep in mind. But overall, let's just kind of go over the benefits of ketogenic diets versus low carb diets. So ketogenic diets uh, almost always uh, uh, cause your appetite to go down and can help you get rid of food cravings. And this is Part of the reason why Atkins induction is so strict, and it's a two-week, uh, designed to be uh, followed for two weeks, so that you get rapidly into ketosis, and it helps to keep your appetite down while you are transitioning from burning primarily sugar to, to burning primarily fat. So, um, so very, very powerful appetite suppressant, and uh, also reduces blood sugar and insulin. Absolutely. When you cut carbs to very low levels, ketogenic levels, your blood sugar goes down and your insulin goes down, and that's what prompts your uh, liver to start producing more ketones so they can serve as an alternative fuel source for you to use. Enhanced athletic performance, this is definitely not my area. Fortunately, we had Jacob talking a lot about it today, um, Jacob Wilson and also uh, Jeff Bullock. They both spoke about uh, performance, what ketogenic diets can do for athletes and uh, just fitness-minded people. And then therapeutic benefits, um, Dom spoke about this quite a bit today, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino spoke about this earlier, um, therapeutic benefits for people with uh, both adults and children with epilepsy who have failed anti-epileptic drugs or just can't tolerate the side effects, um, and also other neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, MS, um, and, and anything neurological uh, or brain-related. Uh, and then cancer, we haven't heard from anybody um, that much, anyway, about ketogenic diets for cancer uh, who have actually gone through it. Tomorrow you're going to hear from a woman who had brain cancer and used a ketogenic diet along with standard therapies to um, recover. Uh, you're also going to hear from a, uh, a nutritionist who specializes in cancer for people with, uh, I'm sorry, keto for cancer, and as well, uh, the Max Love Project is a, uh, a support group, um, a nonprofit organization that provides support to families of children with cancer. And I work with that group. Um, Audra uh, is going to be speaking tomorrow morning about the foundation, and uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful talk. So I firmly believe that ketogenic diets can be very, very powerful and effective. Um, oh, I miss glycogen storage disease. Uh, this is a case where people don't normally um, 
have a problem storing sugar. They store it as glycogen, and then they release it when they need it out of their liver. But people with glycogen storage disease either can't store the glucose as glycogen or they can't release it. So uh, not every type of glycogen storage disease benefits from a low-carb or ketogenic diet, but at least two of them do. Types uh, three and five, and type five is McArdle syndrome, and anyone who came last year may have heard uh, some people talking about it. Um, so again, I think ketogenic diets are wonderful. Um, if they work for you, that's wonderful. But low-carb diet can be great, too. So they usually reduce your appetite. Some people say, unless your ketones are at a certain level, they really don't get that appetite suppression and they still have cravings. And that's very individual. could definitely be the case. Um, also, decreased blood sugar and insulin levels, almost always. But again, it depends on the level of carb restriction. Um, if you're eating a lot of carbs um, and you just don't process carbs that well, you're still not going to see blood sugar values in the, in the normal range. So um, it can be very effective, but sometimes you need to go down to lower levels. Flexibility, I think, is a big benefit to, to low carb. And some people on a keto diet would say you can be very flexible. And you can to some extent, but you don't, when you don't have control over everything you're eating, when you're traveling, when you're at someone's home, when you're faced with um, just not your usual foods, having, being able to have a few more carbs um, just because you're eating at a level where you're not trying to maintain uh, ketosis is okay. Now, for people who need it therapeutically, it's a different story. I'm more here talking about people who use it for uh, diabetes or weight management. And kind of flexing back and forth between the two, I think works really well if you're keto most of the time and maybe have um, you know, a couple days a week where you want to do a little more carbs. Now, I'm not in favor of carb night or carb ups where you go from very, very low carb to super high carb. And we talked uh, a little bit about the problems. Um, Dr. Wilson talked about that earlier. Um, I just think, I can't imagine how I would feel if I ate that amount of carbs now that I'm fat adapted. And I think most of you probably feel the same way. Um, some people like to do it. And it seems like very, very muscular men, young men, are able to do it better than most people. But I still don't recommend it. I don't, I don't see the point of shooting your blood sugar and insulin levels up so high. Um, and then finally, oh no, sorry, large body of anecdotal and um, published research uh, about low-carb diets. And I would say there is a lot about ketogenic diets too, but a lot of the ketogenic diet evidence is on epilepsy, um, really the, the, like the strong controlled studies. Not that many on ketogenic diets now. There are more and more coming up all the time. A lot of the research that's being done is on ketogenic diets. But if you just look at the entire body of research, there are more low-carb studies and you would lump a lot of the ketogenic diets um, into that uh, that are for weight loss and diabetes. And then finally, easy to maintain long-term. Here again, some people would argue the ketogenic diet is easy to maintain long-term, but we just don't have that much evidence on it now because most people haven't been in nutritional ketosis for any uh, long period of time. Five years is a long time, but there's people who've been doing the Atkins diet maybe since the 70s. They found it worked for them and they just kept doing it. So. Um, yeah, I, I think you really need to find what works best for you. And, and just because somebody else has success at less than 20 grams per day, you may not feel your best at less than 20 grams per day. You may need more. So just keep that in mind. There's a lot of overlap between the two. Okay, so I feel, and this is controversial for some, but I feel that fiber is uh, necessary for most people. The amount is questionable and debatable. I think it ranges, um, and it varies from person to person. Uh, you know, some people do great with a very high fiber diet, and others don't, and they see a huge health improvements when they cut back on fiber a little. So I still think we need some, and uh, there's two types of fiber. And here I'm going to be talking about naturally occurring fiber. I'm not talking about processed fiber that's added to food. I'm not talking about, um, like, Metamucil or anything like that. I'm talking about the fiber that comes in vegetables, nuts, um, berries if you eat them, seeds, um, plant-based uh, vegetables. I'm sorry, plant-based fiber. So soluble fiber is the type that dissolves in water. Insoluble fiber does not. It helps to bulk up your stool. So um, neither of them are, di are uh, digested and absorbed in your digestive tract. They both make their way down to the colon. Um, but on its way down the digestive tract, Soluble fiber can really help you to feel full, especially the viscous fiber that forms gels. They slow everything down. You feel full. At the same time, you end up absorbing fewer calories when you eat more fiber. It ends up combining with other foods. It's not just the calories from the fiber-containing food. It's the calories in 
protein and, and fat foods that you eat as well in a mixed meal. Um, one study showed that doubling your fiber helped you absorb less than 100 calories in some cases. Uh, so first it fills you up and then you also end up absorbing fewer calories. So it can be beneficial from a weight loss standpoint for some people. Um, so as far as blood sugar goes, as I said, neither soluble nor insoluble fiber are digested and absorbed in the small um, intestine. So they will not raise your blood sugar. They both make their way down to your colon. The insoluble fiber just bulks up your stool um, and, and passes out of your system. It's not absorbed. Nothing happens to it. The soluble fiber is acted upon by the gut bacteria or your microbiota. They digest the fiber into short-chain fatty acids, and those short-chain fatty acids help to nourish your gut, but they also interact with other organs in your body, like your brain and your liver and your muscles. And even though there's a lot of complex things going on, the overall effect is an improvement in blood glucose regulation. You do get a couple of calories out of soluble fiber, but only about one or two. And soluble fiber only makes up about 30% of all fiber. Most foods contain insoluble fiber, which simply passes out of your body. So you can see a list here of the soluble and insoluble food sources. And um, you know, avocados are great because they contain both, and some of the others do as well. You know, pick the ones that you like, and also experiment with the amount of fiber that works for you. There's not a one-size-fits-all with this. And I just want to make a note um, about IMOs, iso-malto-oligosaccharides. Uh, That's why we call them IMOs. They're very hard to pronounce. <laughs> But this is made from maltose, which is a type of sugar, um, and it's processed. And originally, it was thought that it was not digested and absorbed in the small intestine. But it turns out that some of it is, and that can raise blood sugar levels. And this is the type um, that was in a lot of bars a few years ago. It's been replaced in many of them, but not all. Um, I know Quest is no longer using this. They use uh, corn fiber, a prebiotic corn fiber, that's been shown also to act just like a soluble fiber and not raise blood sugar. So. Fiber. Now, protein, another controversial topic these days in the low-carb community. Um, what's optimal? Uh, I think it really is going to depend on the individual, but uh, any diet that's uh, more than 50% of calories from fat that is also low in carbs is still going to be a low-carb, high-fat diet. Um, it may be higher in protein um, for some people and then than others, but everyone needs a minimal amount of protein in order to be healthy. Uh, first of all, we can't make protein. We can't make the essential amino acids we have to get in our diet. We can make fat, we can make sugar or carbs, but we can't make protein, so we have to get in our diet every day. It tends to make you feel really satisfied. Fat does as well, absolutely, but they have done studies on uh, protein, and it triggers hormones that make you feel full. Uh, at the same time, it speeds up digestion. Um, when you digest protein, it speeds up your metabolism more than when you digest carbs or fat. So you're fuller and you're burning more calories, which is a real benefit. Um, also, higher protein intake helps you to maintain lean muscle mass. And I know when you get on the scale, you want to see that it's gone down if you're trying to lose weight, but you don't know exactly how much of that weight is muscle versus fat and water. And every time you go on a diet and you reduce calorie intake, you end up losing a little bit of muscle. It's just the way it is. It may be a minuscule amount, and hopefully it is, but if you're not getting enough protein, you're really cutting your protein down too low, you can start to lose muscle mass. And then you're gonna burn less calories if you're gonna be more likely to gain weight back. Um, so it's very important during weight loss and also during aging because we tend to lose weight uh, we tend to lose muscle during the aging process. It's called sarcopenia. And uh, also important to be doing resistance training, but getting enough protein. So about 20 to 30% of calories for most people. Um, for some people, uh, maybe a little bit higher if they're eating very low calorie. But you know, I, I recommend about 1 to 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of ideal body weight per day. And so that's not your it's got to be your ideal unless you're at your ideal body weight. If you weigh you know, 100 pounds more than you want to or should, then you want to base the amount on your ideal body weight. So for example, if you weigh 130 pounds or you want to weigh 130 pounds, that's 59, gram, 59 kilograms. You multiply 1 times 59 and 1.8 times 59, and you get 
59 to 106. Um, if you want, it has a pretty big range, but some people feel more comfortable at the lower end and others at the higher end. And again, experiment to see what works best for you, but it is important uh, in order to protect your muscle mass and just be healthy overall. Um, if you want to find out what your ideal body weight is, you can go to the ideal body weight cal calculator and uh, put in your age and other factors that will really help you to, to decide what your uh, ideal body weight is. Have you been interested in trying the new cutting-edge technology of exogenous ketones but didn't know where to get started? Let me introduce you to Perfect Keto. Visit perfectketo.com slash jimmy and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto was created by a functional medicine clinician who developed this unique formula for maximum efficacy. It's great tasting and the most affordable exogenous ketone supplement you can find that raises blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimolar to help increase mental focus, boost your energy, and commence fat burning. It does not contain any soy, dairy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, binding agents, or anything that doesn't directly improve your health. The synergistic power of a low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat ketogenic diet with Perfect Keto Exogenous Ketones will have your body running optimally. Perfect Keto is available in delicious chocolate sea salt and peaches and cream flavors. Each serving comes with 11.38 grams of high quality beta-hydroxybutyrate for maximum ketone boosting while adding in magnesium, potassium, cocoa, stevia, and vitamin C for extra micronutrition. Again, try Perfect Keto for yourself at perfectketo.com jimmy and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at Check out to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto. Are you having issues with fatigue, the keto flu, or muscle cramping on your ketogenic diet? Then allow me to introduce you to Keto Vitals. They will solve all of these issues. Keto Vitals is a high-dose electrolyte in a pill specifically created for the unique needs of the ketogenic lifestyle. They use only the best ingredients. In fact, their form of magnesium was shown in a double-blind trial to improve insulin sensitivity. Keto Vitals is 100% guaranteed. If it doesn't work, they will refund your money. Head on over to KetoVitals.com or you can go on Amazon and get free two-day shipping for Amazon Prime members. Use the coupon code KETO1515 both on Amazon and at KetoVitals.com to get 15% off of your order. Keto Vitals. So since fat is going to be the primary source of calories um, on whatever type of low-carb or ketogenic diet you're on, you want to make sure that choices are really healthy, primarily from whole foods um, and fat sources that are um, fat sources themselves that are healthy. So for plant fats, I would say things like avocado. Um, for food sources, nuts, eggs, dairy. Um, fatty meats. You don't necessarily need to be adding any fats to your meals, just cooking with them. So good Fats to cook with would be olive oil at low temperatures, coconut oil, um, tallow, ghee, any of the others that are listed up there. Um, and then also getting the omega-3 fats is really important. The long-chain omega-3 fats, um, they're important for brain health, and, uh, and these are the essential fatty acids. I said in the previous slide that we can't make fat, um, that we can make fat. The only kinds we can't make are the essential fatty acids, and that's the omega-3 and omega-6. Um, and these are the omega-3 fats. Really, I recommend consuming fatty fish um, at least three times a week, if not more. Um, the amount of fat is going to vary very much um, on the diet you're consuming and also uh, how many calories you're taking in. Somebody who's trying to lose weight, I would not recommend doing, um, you know, like 200 calories a day. Um, I mean, 200 grams of fat per day. Okay, so when we talk about balanced low-carb meal planning, I'm talking about three meals a day. This is based on three meals a day. However, you may be doing intermittent fasting where you're eating only twice a day in a small window. Then you'd need to take in more calories at a time um, and more protein at a time. So you need to get at least 20 to 25 grams in order to have the muscle protein synthesis that we was discussed earlier today. It's not a large amount, but you need that amount um, at a meal. Uh, and 
These are the choices I talked about earlier, the really healthy, uh, unprocessed meats as much as possible. Fat, 25 to 50 grams per day, um, I mean per meal. And you can obviously increase that if you're a, a bigger guy who consumes a lot more calories. Some of the guys in here that I looked around at who are doing keto are probably doing maybe 200 plus uh, grams of, of fat per day, and then it's fine to have more fat than that. But for people who are looking to lose weight, I usually recommend somewhere between 25 and 50 grams if you're doing three meals a day. And then carbs, about 2 to 25. Um, I actually meant to take off the amounts for fiber because I really believe that fiber is individualized. Um, but I, I think keeping your carb intake pretty low um, at each meal, never eating too many carbs at once because that can end up spiking your blood sugar and your insulin. And when it comes to alcohol, um, that's another individual decision. If you want to drink, just choose the lowest carb options, and that would be dry wine. And uh, just plain liquor has no carbs at all. So if you just drink plain liquor, that's fine. But if you drink too much of it, it can still cause problems with, um, obviously, health problems, but also it can put the brakes on fat burning and, and lead to other issues and, and maybe even impact ketosis. All right, so uh, last year I shared my uh, daily menu of what I eat, and uh, this is another day. It's just uh, changed up a little bit, um, different foods, but I ended up with almost the exact same um, amounts of calories, protein, fat, and carbs. And um, it's just, that's, you know, that's what works for me. I don't believe it works for everybody, but what I like about this is that you can take it and you can uh, really tweak it to make it work for you. I love sardines. I eat them first thing in the morning. I know they're a love or hate food, and some of you may hate them at any time of day and definitely wouldn't want them first thing in the morning, but they work really well for me. Um, I love them, but um, if you look around at what I have, I have vegetables at every meal. Again, this may not work for everyone. I personally think it's a healthy way to eat, and I feel very full and satisfied. Um, eating this way. I'm never hungry. So uh, about 1650 calories, 97 grams of protein, 105 grams of fat, 65 grams of carb minus 35 grams of fiber is 30 grams of net carb. Is that ketogenic? For most people, maybe not. For some people, yes. Uh, I know if I test my ketones, um, I'm in mild ketosis first thing in the morning and probably going up during the day. All right, so some of you may be new to low-carb, and others may have been doing it for a long time, but no matter what, you're going to come up with challenges on this journey because we don't live in a low-carb or ketogenic world. So the best thing to do is to have plans in place to meet those challenges so that you're not completely, you know, um, have no idea what to do when they do come up. So I think the first one is uh, unrealistic expectations, losing too much weight, um, within a specific time frame. People often ask me when they first start working with me, do you think I can lose 50 pounds by Christmas? Well, I really have no idea because there's so many things that go into weight loss and how fast you lose. Uh, if you've lost weight repeatedly uh, over the years, up and down, um, you're going to have a harder time losing weight. It's going to be slower each time. If you have certain health conditions, it may be tougher. If you have hypothyroidism, if you have PCOS, um, or other conditions. If you're a woman, if you're older, um, so many different things come into play. So I can't tell you how much you're going to lose. And setting yourself up, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure if you're trying to achieve a specific weight goal that really isn't realistic. And the same thing with a weight goal that can't be maintained. We're not all meant to be a certain size. Um, I know that's sometimes the message we get. And you may see people who lost a lot of weight on keto and went from a size you know, 30 to a size two, but that may not be realistic for everyone, and it's really hard to maintain if that is not really where your body wants to be. So trying to be as healthy as possible, getting your glucose and insulin levels under control and triglycerides, and, you know, really definitely trying to get rid of belly fat and the fat around your liver. Those are the important things, and, um, and do the best you can, but don't try to get down too low where it's going to be impossible to maintain without thinking about it 24-7. And then also expecting to achieve the same results as others. So that I sort of alluded to that here, but I'm also talking about support groups where people, like on Facebook groups, will flash their ketone levels or their blood sugar levels. And they can be very motivating, but they can also be discouraging to someone who's having trouble and struggling to make any progress. So um, if, if they motivate you, that's great. But if you find that you know, it's just too much competition, maybe you know, go away from Facebook or, or some of those for a while. That may be helpful.
Okay, so the best strategy with temptation is to avoid it whenever possible. Keep trigger foods out of the house. Um, if you live alone, this is easy. If you live with people who eat carbs, it's not so easy, but at least keeping them out of sight if they are there. Um, and also calling ahead to restaurants if their menu is not online to check what they have and make sure that you can get appropriate food for yourself. Um, bringing your own food to parties, because you just never know. You may go to a barbecue and it could be marinated in you know, sweet barbecue sauce that you don't want to eat. So make sure you always have something on hand. Um, know whether you're a moderator or an abstainer. So a moderator is someone who can actually have carbs from time to time, a little treat, and it doesn't throw them off plan. And an abstainer is the opposite. An abstainer has one bite of a cookie, and that's it. They got to have another and another, and maybe on to the next thing. And it can throw them off for weeks. So there's not one that's better than the other. You just need to know which one you are. So if you are a moderator, I just want to say, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to take the cake or the cookie, wherever it is. Um, I'm a moderator, but I eat anything high carb so seldom, I had to think really hard about the last time that I had something. And I think it was at my 50th birthday party last year. I never have birthday parties and I never eat cake, but last year I did both because it was 50 and I did have one bite. It didn't trigger any cravings and I went right back to eating a low carb meal the next time. If I was an abstainer, I would have never done that. That would have been sabotage. Um, and if you do give in to, I mean, sorry, if you do give in, then you just move on. If you eat more than you wanted to or eat something you didn't want to, it's okay. A lot of us, um, it takes a little while for low carb to stick or even if you've been doing it a while, sometimes you'll have a little backslide. As long as you get back on track as soon as possible, you'll be fine. Okay, so um, I didn't mention it, but the moderator and abstainer is uh, a concept developed by Gretchen Rubin. She's a writer. Anyone familiar with her? Yeah, she has a few books out, and she has a new one coming out uh, next month called uh, The Four Tendencies, and there are four, The Obliger, The Upholder, The Questioner, and The Rebel. And the test itself is way too long for me to go through. I'm already, I think, running a little short on time. Um, but ten, there's 10 questions. You can take it online, just Google it. But for this specific purpose, this is all about forming habits. She found that people had different tendencies that helped them to form healthy habits. So. I'm just going to ask you one question. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Just silently pick one of these numbers that best corresponds to the question for you. When you formed a healthy habit in the past, what has helped you stick with it? Number one, doing a lot of research as to how and why I might keep that habit. Number two, I could stick to a good habit only when I was answerable to someone else. Number three, I'm good at sticking to habits even if no one else cares. Or number four, I usually don't choose to bind myself in advance to a particular course of action. So... If you pick number one, you're a questioner, and this is somebody who resists outer expectations that don't make sense to them, like a deadline that doesn't make sense from work. That would be something that they would want to resist. Um, versus a, an inner expectation, they do meet something that they want to do for themselves. Um, some, uh, some questioners, uh, they really need to have a lot of information, and it could take a lot of time for them to make this decision. Um, for low carb, They'd want to know what's the mechanism behind it, what is the research behind it, how do you do it. Um, they, they'd want so much before they ever did it, and that's fine. That you answer their questions, um, and and then they'll be fine. And I think that the, all the research and everything that we know about low carb supports it. Um, as far as the obliger, that's the flip side. They easily meet outer expectations. So deadlines, great. Anybody wants anything from them, they will do it if they commit to it. It's harder for them to uh, meet their inner expectations. So let's say they have, um, they're going to meet a friend at, at the movies and they have it down on the calendar, they'll do it. If they were going to do it on their own, they may not do it. They may come up with excuses why not to do it. This person does best with a buddy system. These are Definitely the people that I mostly work with because they love having a dietitian to look over their food diary, to tell them how they're doing. Somebody who's going to ask them, how did you eat? How is everything going? So um, obligers are wonderful people. They do need uh, a lot of uh, outside accountability though. And then upholders meet both outer and inner expectations equally. So they're very disciplined. They just know what needs to be done. They have a lot of habits and they find it easy to stick to. Um, and it sounds really good, and in some ways it is, but they can be too rigid. They can be too tied to their habits. Um, they can be a little obsessive. They can even be a little annoying. And I will say this as an upholder, <laughs> and Gretchen is also an upholder, and she says that the literary character that is an upholder is Hermione Granger. So you get what it's like. It's that, you know, oh no, there's not going to be a test. Oh, there's supposed to be a test. They love to have rules, and 
Uh, the flip side of that is the rebel. The rebel hates rules, does not want to be bound to anything, internally or externally. They do not want to have anything preset that they're going to do. So this rebel could never do like Dr. Bernstein. He recommends six grams of, of carb for breakfast and 12 grams each for lunch and dinner. There's no way that the rebel would ever, ever say that he would do this. He wants to decide what to do and when to do it and have the freedom to change. Freedom is what motivates him versus an upholder loves rules and um, you know, just wants, you know. This is, I think it's really interesting. I think taking the 10 question test to see if you come out to the same one that you came out to the one question would be really interesting. You can find it online. Okay, so as far as sugar substitutes go, we haven't heard from all the speakers yet, but I know there are a lot of different opinions about sugar substitutes. Um, I, I want to go over them really briefly, the natural ones. So I'm talking about natural zero-carb or near-zero-carb sweeteners like stevia, monk fruit, and yacon syrup. Um, indigestible sugar, it's actually an unmetabolizable sugar um, called allulose that's in some of the Quest bars. Uh, sugar alcohols like erythritol and xylitol, which have a very low glycemic impact and don't raise blood sugar. Um, another one, maltitol does raise blood sugar, can also cause some GI upset, and then artificial sweeteners that are listed there. Um, as I said, there are different opinions, and the experts don't agree. Some people think that all sweeteners, whether they are natural or artificial, should not be used because they trigger cravings, that you should only be having natural foods um, and nothing at all processed, even something like stevia. Um, others say those are fine, and the artificial sweeteners are bad for you um, and can cause problems, and others say, if they, don't harm, you know, if they don't cause any side effects in you, um, that you can use them. I personally have seen a lot of mixed research. I will just be honest that I've used sugar substitutes on and off for probably more, almost 40 years, and uh, they've definitely not impacted my weight. I, I use them now, and they don't impact my blood sugar or anything like that either. Um, so I say find what works for you. I completely understand if you want to avoid them and why, but um, I, I don't believe that everyone has to avoid them if they don't cause problems. So find out what works best for you. Um, travel. <laughs> don't order a diabetic meal and expect it to be lowest in carbs. It's probably going to be higher than the others because it's going to be low fat. Um, so you can eat around it, that's one option. You can bring your own replenishments. If you're traveling a long time, if you're only traveling for five or six hours, try to have something beforehand and after. Um, if you need a little snack on board, that's fine too. Um, but just, yes, I, I, I don't like the diabetes meals they send to unsuspecting people with diabetes who think that they're eating well when they eat this. And then at restaurants, you can find low-carb options almost always. You can request to make your meal a salad by, um, you know, just omitting the bun or whatever comes with it, and also the starchy, the starchy component can be replaced by vegetables. Just make sure they're not starchy vegetables. A buffet is an all-you-can-eat restaurant. This really trips people up, and I always think there's a lot of low-carb options, and there are, but really, check with a server first to see what's in some of these foods. They may look innocuous, but they're not. Um, secondly, if you're not trying to maintain or lose weight, it may not be a problem to have a lot more food than you normally do, trying to get your money's worth. But if you're really trying to lose weight, or <laughs> I know, you know what, I know you probably are seeing this. Um, going back for seconds or thirds isn't required. I don't even know if I've ever been to a buffet where I haven't gone back at least once, but I try not to make huge plates of food. Uh, I try to eat slowly. I try to eat about the same amount as I would if I was going to a nice dinner. Um, if you want to eat more and you're not worried about weight gain or anything like that, that's fine. But for people, like the low-carb cruise, it's not all low-carb at the buffet at all, right? Anyone who's been, there's all kinds of food, and it's always there. And if you're really trying to either lose or maintain weight, um, you maybe want to be very careful careful there. And at Brazilian Steakhouse, most choices are fine, but just make sure you find out well, some of the sauces that they use. Okay, so this last slide is for people who have diabetes and are admitted to the hospital. I have been uh, contacted by family members who are so upset about what their loved ones are being fed in the hospital. These are people with diabetes. When you have diabetes, you will be placed on what's called a consistent carb diet. It sort of sounds good, but it's really that the consistency is that there's a set amount of carbs, and they're usually in increments of 15 grams, but they're never as low as 15 grams. They start at 60, and they can go up to 90, 60, 75, or 90 per meal. So this is just, I know it's not beautiful or anything, but this is just a screenshot of a menu from a hospital for a diabetic diet. It's extremely low in fat. It is 60 grams of carb at every meal, and it is a 30-gram snack at night, graham crackers, and non-fat milk. 
This is for people with diabetes who are in the hospital either because they're sick or they're recovering from surgery, and that is the time their blood sugars are going to be the most likely to spike. So the feeding them this diet is, you know, to me, um, it's just absolutely absurd. So there may not be a lot you can do. You try to talk to the dietitian. There's definitely no low-carb diet yet in most hospitals that I know of, but you can ask, please, I, I follow a diet where I don't eat any starchy things. Can you give me more protein? Can you give me more vegetables? Even if they won't leave the starches off, they'll usually give you what you want, and no one's going to force you to eat the carbs. They cannot do it. Um, they may want you to eat some and encourage you, but you can always stand your right, and you can do this for your loved one, too, if they're in the hospital. Um, and then you can also try to order in. Um, some hospitals will let you do this or have your family members bring in food for you. Okay, so the take-home points are that low-carbon ketogenic diets can be healthy, well-balanced, and sustainable. Um, both the quantity, and quant the quantity and quality of food matters. Do what's best for you. Do not worry about what other people are doing. Um, I don't know if I stressed enough that the competition thing is, is wrong, and just do what works for you, and you will get there eventually if you stick to what you know is working and then have plans in place to navigate all the challenges that will come up. Um, you know, maybe even today there will be a uh, something that comes up. Um, probably not at this conference, but you just, you never know. So um, anyway, thank you very much and enjoy the rest. I get very confused about whether we're supposed to count net carbs or total carbs. And if you're doing net carbs, and you look at ingredients on a product, and it talks about what the fiber is, but yes. then it also lists the sugars separately. How do you know if you separate the, if you subtract the fiber, if the sugars should play an impact in that? Okay, great question. So the important thing to do, first of all, is yes, you look at the fiber and you can usually subtract it, but if there's IMOs in there as that's the fiber source, you need to look at the ingredients list to get the net carbs. IMO. So, the IMO, isomaltoglucosaccharides. See, I cannot pronounce that. That's why I say IMOs. Sorry. Um, they're usually only, um, they're in some bars. They're no longer in Quest bars, but they're in some other bars. Um, so you want to look for those. Um, and then as far as sugar alcohols go, erythritol really doesn't raise blood sugar. Um, it, if you eat a lot of it, I think it could. It has a very slight glycemic impact. It's slightly absorbed, but most people don't use anywhere near where it would really raise your blood sugar. So what I say is you subtract all of the fiber if it's naturally occurring in a food or, um, you know, like, do you have a food in mind? Like some, is it a bar that you're talking about? Or no, because I don't eat those. Okay, um, okay. Then that, you may not have to worry about it then. If it's just um, like a crackers or something like that and it has naturally occurring fiber in it from almond flour or something, then you can subtract all of those to get the net carb. Um, the sugars are included in the total carb, so total carbs are usually sugars, starch, and fiber. There's also sugar alcohols as a separate category. Um, so it can be confusing, but if it's, if it's a packaged food, you still want to look at the ingredients to see. Also, if they've added any fiber in and it's processed fiber, I wouldn't feel comfortable subtracting that fiber out, only if it's fiber that comes from a whole food, like uh, nuts or almond flour or something like that. Okay, thank yeah. you. Sure. I'm allergic to fish, so what do I do? I can't eat fish three times a week. Okay, I understand. And some people just don't like fish either. Um, so all fish, all fish and seafood. Okay, um, so in that case, you can take uh, algae that has yeah. DHA. Okay, you're already doing that, great. And you can get a little bit of a conversion from some of the um, alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, in walnuts, flaxseed, uh, chia seeds. Um, and then it's in small amounts in others as well. So um, can you take fish oil capsules? Nothing. Okay. Then um, the, that's what you'll do. And, you know, also really minimize omega-6 fats because that's important. The balance of omega-3 to omega-6. So try not to get, well, obviously, if you're here, you've already heard vegetable oils are bad. Um, but also even some of the meats, uh, like if you do chicken, dark chicken is a little higher in omega-6 um, versus grass-fed beef would be higher in omega-3. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Hi, Francesca. I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm Amanda from London, Ontario. Oh, hello. And I, I just is, want to commend Francesca. So I'm a diabetes nurse educator, and uh, I was having some health issues, and I stumbled upon your site. 
And when I read your story, it was like I was reading about myself. And um, so I went down the low-carb, high-fat journey and uh, was able to move out of pre-diabetes, get off all thyroid medication, and I didn't lose any weight. Mm -hmm. I was exactly the same weight that I am now, and yeah. you were in a similar situation. Um, but I have to really thank you because you're really allowing us to now take low-carb and turn consensus on its head by bringing speakers into London, Ontario, um, and surrounding areas to to recognize that there's another way to um, help our patients with diabetes and obesity um, to move the needle. So I, I just can't thank you enough. And if you've never been to Francesca's uh, website, I mean, there's wonderful websites out there, but hers is very easy to navigate for those of us who are complete neophytes to the low-carb um, way of life. So I just want to thank you very much. Wow, thank you so much, Amanda. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Hi, Francisca and Carolina. I'm a low-carb dietitian down in Mexico. Great. And I wanted to know how you deal with keto flu with your patients and an explanation. Uh, I've been getting all my patients, my female patients, mm -hmm. they get keto, keto flu, but no men. So do you have an explanation for that? Your, your female patients get the keto flu, but, no but the men, men don't. No. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, they're getting all their electrolytes that they need. They're getting lots of sodium, pota and potassium, and potassium, magnesium, yeah. water. Yeah, once they get the kids flu, mm -hmm. I recommend that because mm, not all of them get it. Okay. Maybe half of them. How long did they stay in this flu? It shouldn't last Between that long. Between three and seven days. One. Sometimes they follow the wagon before, because of that, yeah. but mm, only one patient did. The okay. rest, they are all okay with that because I explain what it is and then they start. Yeah, some people better. just take a longer time adapting and it's tough. I mean, are they getting symptoms where they're absolutely incapacitated or is it just that they have a headache and don't feel good headache, for a few days? Uh, fatigue, okay. clamp. If you can cramps. convince them to hang in there, they're going to feel so good when they come yeah. out the other side, really. Yeah, I know. Um, but I don't, that's interesting. I don't, I've, I've, I've worked with men who have gotten the keto flu, too. So yeah. it, it can happen. I think it just depends on, on the person. Okay. But I just wanted to know if there was some explanation. Yeah, I don't. Unfortunately, okay. I don't have any more don't insight worry. than that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, as a male who can't find his way around the kitchen, um, <laughs> just a couple of, uh, 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 two comments and yeah. uh, one question. Okay. And that is, uh, early on when we talk about uh, grams of protein and how much protein, I got, was confused and I'm thinking that grams of what it weighs. So I wondered how often that came up and that's sure. just a comment. Okay. Also, I do a lot of traveling and so uh, your slide on traveling was very good. Uh, one other trick is, um, you know, go to Whole Foods or and just buy avocados or everything on sure. the list. But but instead of going to the restaurants and that kind of thing in the hotels, just find a find excellent. A and then uh, the question is: is uh, Dr. Bernstein uh, said something long ago, and I can't remember what the answer was, but. I call it a, a food dipstick. So you go to a restaurant and they say, oh, yeah, it doesn't have any sugar in it or, yeah. you know, the spaghetti sauce. But what is it that he recommends? Or do you, does that ring a bell in I terms of what, the, what the, it was? I think it's the pH. Who's familiar with this? Dr. Bernstein should, I mean, Dr. Berkowitz. Diastics. Okay. Is that, is that, a, is that a brand name or... That's it. And then I, I just wanted to address your comment about the protein. Oh, so yes. that, like, when I say the amount per day, it's not the amount that the food weighs. It's the amount that's in the food. So, uh, like, a one-ounce portion of meat can have anywhere between maybe five to seven grams of, of protein, usually. And, and each egg has about that amount, depending how big it is. Well, uh, kind of a funny thing to that, because when I first started to do that, and I thought, I, I worked out, you know, the 1.0 to 1.8, and I thought... You know, I'm, I'm going to get one egg, and I'm going to starve to death. Right, so. right, yeah. <laughs> if it was just the weight of the food, yeah. Hi. Um, Hello. I don't know if you get this a lot, but many people, they start on low-carb, they lose a lot of weight, and then the last few pounds can be a little bit stubborn. Yes. If this is the case, can you tell us about, in your experience, kind of the top reasons, and if you have some tips about that? Yeah. So um, the question is, people lose a lot of weight at the beginning, and then they kind of, the last few pounds are the most difficult to lose. And it's true. Sometimes you lose the first, you know, 50 pounds much more easily, um, or maybe even the first 20 pounds more easily than the last 10. Um, it, basically, once you have lost a certain amount, 
your, your body, um, the metabolism can slow down. It depends how you're doing the, the low-carb ketogenic diet, too. Um, increasing your activity so that you have more muscle mass and burn more calories. There's a lot of little tricks you can do, usually changing things up. Some people have found a benefit by switching and doing some intermittent fasting at least a couple times a week. Or, um, you know, just trying different things, and different things work for different people. There's no really one-size-fits-all when you hit a stall. But the important thing to do is to keep going, because look at how much you've already gone. You know, you've already done most of your journey, um, and then you don't have that much longer to go. It may take a while, but you will get there. And just try to keep people motivated. I know it can be tough. It really can, because um, especially when they feel they're doing everything right. But I think just doing little tweaks like that, changing around your timing of meals and things can be really beneficial. One more. Okay. Yeah. One more. I, I love eggs. I want to finally know the truth. How many eggs can I eat in, let's say, a week or a day? All right, I'm going to go on a limb here because I think protein can be um, uh, pretty much self-limiting. So as many as you want. Ah, <laughs> uh, living la vida loca. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show. Disc of Light.